welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 114 for the first third of July 2014, and I will be talking about none of those topics. The topic I'm going to talk about today is ethics in science. There's no actual claim for this episode. This is one of those that really falls outside of the standard, straightforward debunking of things, or ones that I can even really directly tie to physics, astronomy, or geology, though I will do a little bit in the wrap-up just to show that I can. I was all set to do the Norway Spiral episode when I was announced around June 28th that Facebook had published a study in a leading science journal about its ability to influence the mood of people by showing them happy or sad news items. I was really ticked. Seeing that story made me very, very angry, Facebook, take note, and I posted several follow-ups on Facebook, or at least to my personal Facebook page, preferring to leave my righteous indignation to those who at least call me a friend. Eric B. suggested on June 29th that I do a podcast episode about it. I thought about it, and I decided that this would be as good a time as any, and it will let me bring in perhaps one of the viest of VIPs, my dad. Dr. Jeffrey Robbins is currently professor of pediatrics at the largest children's hospital in the United States. He heads the Division of Molecular Cardiovascular Biology, and I've had a lot of years learning how to say that, and is executive director of the Heart Institute. He has won numerous national and international awards for his research in cardiovascular disease and oversees a number of clinical trials. Though his mother and I are still waiting for him to get the Nobel Prize, I welcome you to the podcast, Dr. Jeffrey Robbins. Thank you very much, Stu. (laughs) So I don't want to take up too much of your time, especially since we're recording this on July 4th. So let's cut right to the chase. First off, in broad brushstrokes, can you describe general rules of ethics in scientific research? So, well, scientific research or human research? General scientific research first. Uh, So I always go by the smell test. Uh, if If it smells bad... Don't do it. Okay. Uh, and and uh, scientific research, uh, the ethics are you uh, never plagiarize. Uh, you give credit where credit is due. Uh, you're generous with your time and reagents that are developed. Uh, you share. And uh, you essentially follow the golden rule. Okay. And that's scientific research. And obviously, you never, ever manipulate your data. Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that after you and I hang up with manipulating data and uh, a few certain scandals. But uh, with that said about the general ethics in science, um, they're sometimes overlooked or at least sort of pushed by the wayside in almost every scientific field except when dealing with anything medical because we're dealing with animals and humans. I'm not saying that all scientists other than those who deal with animals and humans plagiarize and that kind of stuff, but those are are sort of so ingrained that we don't even think about them as much. So when dealing with animal research or uh, with humans, what are the specific ethics there? What are the the over-the-top considerations beyond you don't plagiarize, you share your data, you're 
you're nice to people, that kind of stuff. Well, obviously, uh, for humans, uh, the first thing is uh, you absolutely can do no harm. Uh, if you're putting uh, something untested in a human or you're doing an invasive procedure, uh, the potential benefit has to outweigh the potential harm. Uh, for animals, uh, we're guided by a series of federal regulations and regulations at our institution, and all animal experiments have to be approved by the Institutional uh, Animal Review Committee. It's really uh, very burdensome. You have to say exactly what it is you're doing. You have to uh, tell them whether or not the animal is going to experience any discomfort. Uh, if there is discomfort, you have to tell them what analgesics uh, you're going to be using to relieve that. You have to justify the fact that the experiment cannot be done in any other way, that is, using cells or other materials that are non-sentient. Uh, and you have to use the minimum number of animals, uh, and you have to justify all of this with references from the literature. So it's almost uh, like writing a separate, like a giant grant. You have to... My, my animal my animal protocol is 35 pages okay <laughs> and it has to be it has to be uh, updated every year and you have to write a completely new one every three years okay uh, so other than animals uh, with humans what's generally needs to be done in order to get approval to do human research and what are the ethical guidelines when doing human research and I'm talking about you know, not just medical stuff like testing drugs but also psychological research that kind of stuff well I mean every every uh, university has its own institutional review board but all of those review boards are guided by uh, ethics that are actually were actually laid down internationally. It's called the Helsinki Agreement, and then of course the uh, federal government uh, has to approve. Well, not approve, but has to be abided by. The federal government has has pages and pages of rules that the IRBs, uh, the institutional review boards, have to adhere to. And the way that they make them adhere to it is is if the university or entity takes any federal funds, then they have to sign an agreement saying they're going to adhere to all relevant federal regulations. Um, and human experimentation is interpreted very broadly. The only time that you would use human material where you wouldn't have to go before an IRB is if you're using cadaver material or if you're using samples that were already taken for a different purpose and they were what's called de-identified, which means that there is no way that the researcher could ever trace the sample back to a particular person or patient. Hmm. Uh, and, and this is, the, these are, you know, very defined uh, procedures uh, that have to be followed. And there are different uh, levels of regulation. There are different um, uh, <clears throat> hoops that you have to go through depending on what it is you're doing to a patient. There's also the fact that when you do human experimentation, you have to justify who it is you're experimenting on. Uh, that is, the federal government wants you to make the study as broadly applicable as possible, 
And so there are gender guidelines and age guidelines uh, as well, as, as well as uh, racial guidelines. So I, I can't propose a study uh, where I say I'm going to look at old white men. Okay. Unless, unless the hypothesis uh, depends upon uh, that racial restriction. I have to include minorities. I have to explain how I'm going to recruit everyone into the study. And when you actually want to uh, – so say you get approval for the stuff through the, your institutional review board, which is governed by both national and international uh, law, I guess. What are the some of the specifics in terms of when you actually go to recruit – the patients, uh, stuff like a lot of words have been bandied about with the Facebook study, informed consent and right to be removed and that kind of stuff. Well, we have, we have very uh, rigid definitions for what informed consent uh, entails. Uh, for instance, if you presented it to the patient that if they don't have uh, this procedure, they're absolutely going to die then we would say you are not presenting the patient with uh, informed consent. They, they, have to, they have to be presented with an objective set of odds, if we know them, uh, so that they understand the risks and potential benefits. And you have to question them, you know, say, do you, do you understand what's going to happen? And if, and if they say yes, uh, then they're handed the form. Um, they're handed the form in a very uh, defined way as well uh, because you can imagine uh, if you're a patient and you're in a room and say a whole group of doctors walks in and says, okay, look, you have to have this procedure. You might feel a little bit intimidated. Mm-hmm. You have, and, and in fact, that would negate informed consent. Uh, so it's, it's very what, – what we do is we usually – have uh, at least two members of the family present, uh, and we usually have a nurse uh, coordinator, a research nurse, uh, come in and uh, explain the form, ask if there are any questions, and then the doctor comes in. You know, if the patient uh, has more questions, a, a single doctor comes in, but we always try to, if we can, have the patient's family outnumber uh, the medical staff. Uh, in, in these situations. And so uh, just to, to blanketly, explicitly say it, informed consent wouldn't be something where if a person checks into a hospital and signs the general, yeah, I'm here and you, you need to work on me kind of thing, and the the form says, oh, by the way, you now give us permission to do whatever research we want on you, that would not be informed consent, Right. That would not that would not pass. Okay. That, that consent that consent form would never be approved by our IRB ever. Okay. I mean, we have we have informed consents really for literally hundreds of different procedures uh, in in our hospital. And in general, sort of the, the right to be removed from a study after it starts is that also generally in place, or is that just part of the informed consent in general? Like you, you know, th- this is you are telling us yes, you are informed of the pros, the cons, what this is going to entail, what the likely side effects are going to be. You always have you always have the right to withdraw. 
Okay, even after this stuff has started. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, I, I mean, all you, you know, it's it's uh, <laughs> just say no, <laughs> and, and and no means no, and everything has to stop. No, there's not even any argument. I mean, you're not really allowed to argue. You know, you can say, "Can would you like would you like additional discussion?" Uh, but, but that's about it. That's about it. Yeah. I mean, their their informed consent means there can be no coercion. Okay, and no ambiguity. And well, you know, unfortunately, there's always ambiguity, isn't there? Uh, because it, a patient, if a patient's having a complex uh, heart procedure done. Uh, we can explain to the patient what it is we're going to do, but he or she obviously can't know everything about the procedure. Mm-hmm. We, we can explain what the rate of complications are. Uh, we can explain what the success rate is. We can explain what the outcomes are probably going to be. But in medicine, there's always ambiguity. And so how does that vary with psychology? Uh, by, by way of hopefully a short example uh, when I was an undergrad, as probably most undergrads uh, have done, you generally take part in psychology experiments for credit in your intro psychology class, which most people take to fulfill a gen ed requirement. And I remember filling out informed consent forms, but I also remember that there was one that described the procedure they were going to do, but it was misleading, that it wasn't actually what they were really studying. And I was only told afterwards what they were actually studying because if I had known, it would have changed the psychology outcome. It was something about uh, reward with reading passages and, and food or something or other. Like I was told I was going to – if I came back later, I'd get a brownie or something or other and whether or not that was going to change the way that I reacted. And the end up the, – the thing at the end was, no, you don't actually come back and get a brownie. We, we just made that up because we needed so that in other for words, the study. They're, they're, purposely, they're purposely misleading because it's part of – it would bias the study, you're saying. Right. How is that kind of stuff um, taken into account or approved or what are the extra hurdles that that might face? Because that's not informing the person what they're actually doing. Well – what I would tell you, I, I mean, that, that's, that's a hard question to answer specifically, but what I would tell you is that uh, that would certainly have to be made explicitly clear in the IRB application that the researcher was making. And the IRB would then pass judgment on that. Uh, now, our IRB not only has uh, physicians – uh, and nurses on it, but it has a bioethicist, and it has at least two community leaders and uh, lawyers. I don't know if there are any lawyers. Yeah, yeah. There's a there. Well, but it's it's a uh, hospital lawyer. Okay. It doesn't. It does not have. I think a community lawyer in there. Uh, it it usually has a clergyman uh, from from the community, at least one, and usually two. Hmm. Um. So I think I think something like that would would have to pass muster uh, through the IRB, but that's what IRBs are there for to, you know, to deal with these sorts of ambiguities. If there's no danger to the patient or to the subject, right. I expect something like that would probably be approved. Yeah, in this case, there clearly was no danger to me because I turned out fine. Uh, but, and actually, I, I have to say that going in, I actually knew that there was no, going to be no second part because someone. A friend of mine had told me that they had done that study and there was no second part, but 
Eh, I probably should have recused myself. But anyway, um, so the IRB, is there anything else that you can tell um, the, the listening audience about what IRBs are? I was going to ask you um, who makes it up, who's in it, but you just answered that. Is there anything else that you think that they should know about the IRBs? Because I can see um, I see some people thinking, well, the IRB is probably just there to rubber stamp everything so oh, no. that the hospital can do the research. No, I, I mean, again, I can only speak to the organizations with which I'm involved. And, and I expect that there is tremendous variation in IRBs. Uh, for instance, the Facebook uh, one with the uh, Columbia uh, Cornell. IRBs. Cornell. I mean, I think they're, I think they're out to lunch. But... Yeah, we'll, get that, we'll get to that in a sec. <laughs> uh, but, you know, our IRB uh, is pretty rigorous. I think it is it is extremely rare that an application gets approved uh, the first time it goes through the committee. Hmm. It almost always goes back to the uh, researcher or research team for modification. And normally, I think it's it's a, I know our IRBs uh, take usually three tries before it's satisfactory, and some of them take a lot more than that. And some of them are never approved. Okay. So it is okay. it is very definitely not a rubber stamp, at least at our institutions. So you said that this is uh, generally governed by ethics set down in the, the Helsinki Agreement? Well, those, those were the guidelines. They, the, it's really governed by federal guidelines and then institutional guidelines. But the institutional guidelines have to be at least as rigorous as the federal guidelines. So do you have any idea how this might vary outside of the United States? Oh, I think it probably varies widely. I mean, it's actually easier to do experiments on humans in Europe than it is to do them on animals. Oh. Um, okay. So, yeah, it, it varies widely. And, and many... Many pharmaceutical houses, and for that matter, scientists uh, do uh, do projects in countries like uh, Brazil and South Africa uh, because uh, they can do projects there that never would be approved. Um, for instance, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example for for like animals, but it could be applicable to humans. So we we look at things like uh, how quickly uh, proteins are degraded during uh, cardiac disease. And one of the things that you would like to do is to manipulate nutritional intake. Um, and so ideally you would like to starve the animal for a period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in Italy, uh, uh, you can actually starve an animal for uh, 36 hours uh, and just provide them with water. Uh, here, in, in our institution, uh, that protocol was turned down. They would not allow us to completely starve the animal. We had to uh, essentially reduce caloric intake uh, to 30% for a certain amount of time rather than starve them completely. And that confuses the experiment. I mean, it makes it much harder to get interpretable data, but that's the way it is. So these, these rules vary widely. Uh, the EU, European Union, has their own set of rules. Britain has another set of rules. Uh, we have our set of rules. Canada has a different set of rules. And, and so it, it varies. Okay. 
And um, I think in the show notes for the episode, I'll provide links to at least the the Helsinki uh, agreement so that people can see what at least the international baseline is and then a link to the the federal guidelines. So with that said, um, you already hinted at it a little bit. Um, Personally, what do you think of what Facebook did? And uh, do you think that the Facebook employee should be held to different ethical standards than the two co-authors from Cornell? And what do you think of what Cornell's IRB did? Uh, and well, be, I think be frank. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think there's there's a lot of stuff happening here. Um, I don't really think that this is a gray area. I think what they did was wrong. Uh, I mean, just flat out wrong. First of all, no one reads those pages and pages of small print agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, they didn't have the ability to opt out. Uh, because they didn't know that they were being experimented on. Uh, thirdly, and and I think a critical point is you had minors participating, uh, and and that's that's just outside the ethical pale. That that should never have happened. Uh, Why and, are the rules I, with minors different? Uh, well, because until you come of the age of majority, uh, you are not legally uh, able to sign uh, uh, informed consent. It is thought, you know, that you really don't have uh, that ability. And you know, we deal with this all the time in the children's hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for instance, you can have a study starting, and uh, the parents will sign the agreement, uh, but then the uh, child reaches eighteen. Uh, we have to negotiate a whole new set of agreements with that with that uh, subject, and and so Facebook, you know, there were certainly people under eighteen uh, mm-hmm. that were sucked into that study, uh, and then we have uh, Cornell's IRB, and you know they're saying, well, our rules don't really apply because they were dealing with a pre-existing data set. Uh, that's just baloney. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, I mean, we're forced any, any place, if we do an experiment off campus, that site has to meet at least our guidelines. Uh, that, that, that's, uh, our, our IRB insists on that. So in fact, Cornell saying, oh, it didn't happen here. We, you know, as a pre-existing data set doesn't apply that in, in my view, that is disingenuous particularly, again, when children were involved. Yeah. And then, finally, I don't think PNAS ever should have published that paper. Yeah, so uh, for listeners who don't know, PNAS is Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. It's the journal in which the paper was published, and they have their own ethical guidelines that state that papers must adhere to. Uh, so what are those in general, if you know? Well, I mean, they, they have to ad- adhere to all federal guidelines for human research uh, or animal research. I mean, every paper I publish, I have to put a statement in there saying this, these protocols were approved by the institutional, either IRB or institutional animal uh, care committee. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, and, and I guess, you know, these guys were able to say that. Because <laughs> Cornell said we don't yeah. care; it's not our stuff. I, I think I think I think Cornell needs to take a hard look at itself uh, over this. They, they really do. 
Now, you know, you could defend it by saying, okay, the federal government's cutting back on social research and social science. And, you know, there are actually congressmen that say, okay, we don't want to support anything in social media. And, you know, I certainly agree that research has to be done. Uh, but you know something? The ends uh, actually don't justify the means. Yeah, especially in this case when they saw, what, like a 0.002% change in stuff. It's like, really? You, you violated all of these ethics for that? Yeah, but if you have, if you have what, 696,000 people mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. You, and you make, you know, people that already were depressed a bit more depressed – uh, who's to say that uh, something bad might not happen? Yeah, or didn't happen. I mean, you'll never know. Exactly. Whereas, so, so actually, uh, along those lines, um, do you, do your protocols, at least where you are, require that kind of follow up? Because this is a case where Facebook did their one week study and then said, "Okay, here here are the data. Let's do whatever." With your stuff, and, and probably with most stuff, if you can speak to it. Does it require follow-up in terms of what was the actual harm in this? What were there things that we didn't anticipate and were the negative things that we did anticipate were those actually – did those happen? So up to a point, but there's always a time limitation because of money. You know, grants run for – a certain period of time and if you don't have the funds, you don't have the personnel to do the follow-up. Uh, but normally, yes, we try to uh, follow the patients and see what happens to them, uh, just for research purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing that my institute is able to do because we can internally fund those sorts of things. So we have, in fact, what's called a recovery group that, that looks at these sorts of things and follows those patients. But I don't think that most places can do that. And so that's something that maybe a hospital can do as opposed to uh, a university. Uh, very few hospitals actually can can do it. They're they're just not run like like ours is. Okay, I think some of the, some of that's probably from your input, probably <laughs> just based on what I know of how uh, uh, opinionated you've been in the past with the way things are run at the hospital. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm out to change things. So, yes. uh, okay, I think that that covers everything that I wanted to ask you. Um, is there anything else that you think that people should know who are listening to this about ethics and science in general, about medical ethics, uh, or even about um, what uh, IRBs, or about what happened in this study? That um, and just so you know, I will be talking probably for another fifteen minutes or so about my take on the Facebook study after we hang up. I mean, I I don't think you can ever go on automatic pilot. You 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 always have to be vigilant. And the more informed you are as a subject, I think the, the better the study will be, actually. But me- medical ethics, it's, it can be very, very gray. And uh, that's, that's why you have these, these groups of people looking at it and you try to come up with the best answer. There's no right answer, usually. Uh, there's just a, a, a better way of doing things. Um, People are going to continue to play fast and loose with it, particularly the uh, social media. We already know, you know, corporations are people, right? And now they have religious opinions. Except, except they're people <laughs> without much of, of, of a conscience. Uh, yes. I think it needs to be vigilant. Well, this, this is supposed to be an apolitical podcast, so we'll stop talking about that. But <laughs> anyway, okay. 
Well, if that's about it, I thank you for your time, and hopefully the listeners appreciated your insights. And so I'll say uh, thank you. All right. Have a good weekend. Uh, You too. Bye-bye. So now that you have heard from my dad, uh, a medical doc, well, not a medical doctor. He always said he was a doctor when we were growing up. Trust him, he's a doctor. Uh, But he's a research scientist, and now he heads this uh, Heart Institute where you combine research and the clinical side. So he's much more involved in uh, the clinician side now than he used to be, or the clinical side. Before, it was mostly just research that he did in terms of uh, more of the animal research. But now that you've heard from him, you're going to hear from me. In the interest of full disclosure, I did write this part of the podcast episode before I interviewed my dad, so my views are not influenced by his, uh, but after we did this interview, they're pretty much the same. I think that the Facebook study was incredibly unethical, and before I start getting these comments to the contrary, let me say this. I fully recognize that Facebook is not necessarily legally bound by the same ethics as university researchers or hospital researchers or anyone else that's receiving public money. I also fully recognize that Facebook is just one of many internet companies who routinely perform these kinds of tweaks to try to alter user behavior to better sell their products. And I fully recognize that advertisers have been using psychology studies for decades, or perhaps even centuries, to try to better sell their products. And I recognize that the study itself produced a relatively minor effect, like observing one word change in 50,000. And I recognize that other researchers who actually do this kind of work have said that the methods themselves that were used were bad, or not necessarily the best ones for the job, and that it doesn't actually show what Facebook and the other two authors claimed that it does. I realize all of that. I still think that those are besides the point, and that the study was unethical. I think that the professional researchers involved should have refused on ethical grounds because there was no specific informed consent or ability to opt out, and it used minors, and as my dad thinks, I think that the Cornell's IRB was... I don't know what they were doing. I also think, as my dad briefly touched on, that the claims that the terms and conditions for Facebook saying that user data may be used for quote-unquote research is simply too vague to ethically cover this kind of study. Nobody reads those, even though everybody clicks the I agree or accept or whatever. Nobody reads those except for the industry lawyers. At its core, Facebook wanted to see if they could alter human emotions, change how you are feeling. The methods and results don't matter. It's the intent, and the experiment was designed to try to do that. They were employing a procedure meant to try to change how people are feeling. And I think that the ethics of that must be erred on the side of caution. Again, I realize that the end effects were very minor, but given the sample size of nearly 700,000, you can be guaranteed that many people suffered from depression who were part of this study. And going in... Facebook didn't know what the magnitude of that effect, of if any effect would be found, they didn't know what the magnitude of that would be. Instead of it being 0.002%, it may have been 10%. That's why research ethics are in place. That's why we have informed consent. That's why there should have been an opt-in saying, hey, 
we don't know what this is going to be. We're going to try to alter your mood in some way, and it may be a significant effect. Now, I realize that that might change the outcome of the result if you know going in that they're trying to alter your mood, but there are potentially ways around that. The example of the psychology study that I was involved in when I was an undergrad. Or it would have been rejected because it's simply unethical and they wouldn't have been able to do the research. That's okay. I hate to say that there are some places that science simply shouldn't go, but at the very least, I think there are some things with ethics that we simply shouldn't compromise on. That's why these ethics are in place. The Facebook non-apology was also rather disturbing. I'll read it in full, posted on the lead author's Facebook page. And just so you know, the other authors, the ones at Cornell, were instructed to stay quiet about this and direct all inquiries to Facebook, at least in the first few days of when this was really hitting the internets. So to quote, okay, so a lot of people have asked me about my and Jamie and Jeff's recent study published in PNAS, and I wanted to give a brief public explanation. The reason we did this research is because we care about the emotional impact of Facebook and the people that use our product. We felt that it was important to investigate the common worry that seeing friends post positive content leads to people feeling negative or left out. At the same time, we were concerned that exposure to friends' negativity might lead people to avoid using Facebook. We didn't clearly state our motivations in the paper. Regarding methodology, our research sought to investigate the above claim by very minimally deprioritizing a small percentage of content in newsfeed based on whether there was an emotional word in the post for a group of people, about 0.04% of users or 1 in 2,500, for a short period, one week in early 2012. Nobody's posts were quote-unquote hidden, they just didn't show up on some loads of feed. Those posts were always visible on friends' timelines and could have shown up on subsequent newsfeed loads. And we found the exact opposite to what was then the conventional wisdom. Seeing a certain kind of emotion, positive, encourages it rather than suppresses it, or is, as he actually says. And at the end of the day, the actual impact on people in the experiment was the minimal amount to statistically detect it. The result was that people produced an average of one fewer emotional word per thousand words over the following week. The goal of all our research at Facebook is to learn how to provide a better service. Having written and designed this experiment myself, I can tell you that our goal was never to upset anyone. I can understand why people have concerns about it, and my co-authors and I are very sorry for the way that the paper described the research and any anxiety it caused. In hindsight, the research benefits of the paper may not have justified all this anxiety. While we've already considered what research we do carefully, we, not just me and several other researchers at Facebook, have been working to improve our internal review practices. The experiment in question was run in early 2012, and we have come a long way since then. Those review practices will also incorporate what we've learned from the reaction to this paper. End quote. Nowhere in there is an actual acknowledgement of the ethical issues. It's an, I'm very sorry for the way this paper described the research and any anxiety it caused, instead of, we shouldn't have done all of this without informed consent, and we've taken steps to put in ethics department that will review all Facebook research in the future and make sure that it complies with academic and federal and international standards. Nowhere in that apology does it actually say that. This is a, we're sorry for people 
that got offended because of the way this was reported. I mean, the whole sentence, in hindsight, the research benefits of the paper may not have justified all its anxiety, almost blames the people who have reacted negatively to the study for all of the negative publicity. That's just not how things are done. This is why in most dramas that involve any sort of everyday interactions or even future, like Star Trek, for example, all of that stuff usually typically has some sort of episode where medical ethics are faced, where, for example, in Star Trek Voyager, the doctor was faced in an episode where one of the characters had some weird alien attached to her that was slowly killing her. And the doctor called up a holographic projection that used the research of a doctor that had done very unethical things, that had experimented on people without informed consent. And the question was, can the doctor ethically use that research? Can the doctor ethically use the holographic projection of the person who had done that research? It doesn't really matter for purposes of this episode what the end result was. The end result was, yes, he, he did actually use the research, but he made sure that it was used in an ethical way, and then after his ends were accomplished and they all end up happily of laughter, he deleted all references uh, to that research in the database. That's beside the point. The point is, is that this kind of ethical stuff is routinely discussed in drama, and we always err on the side of caution. The more informed consent, the more you know what's going to happen the more you err on the side of not doing the human stuff that's going to cause harm, that's generally the better. That's what we've agreed to as a society. That's why the public generally trusts doctors and scientists in general more than most other people. In other news with this, Forbes pointed out two days after all this broke in the newsosphere that in Facebook's terms and conditions from when the study was done in January 2012, the whole your data may be used for research, paraphrasing, line, wasn't actually even present. So they didn't even have the uninformed consent. Uh, to quote Forbes, in January 2012, the policy did not say anything about users potentially being guinea pigs made to have a crappy day for science, nor that quote-unquote research is something that might happen on the platform. Four months after the study happened in May 2012, Facebook made changes to its data use policy, and that's when it introduced this line about how it might use your information, quote, for internal operations including troubleshooting, data analysis, testing, research, and service improvement, end quote. Facebook helpfully posted a red line version of the new policy, contrasting it with the prior version from September 2011, which did not mention anything about user information being used in quote-unquote research, end quote. And I'll have a link to the Forbes article in the show notes, which also links to this whole red line version, which shows you that no, this whole internal research thing was not in there when the study was actually being underdone. So they didn't even have a poorly informed consent. They had nothing. Also, and I had sent this article to my dad before we started recording, so this is how he he brought it up, the Forbes article points out that there was no filter for anyone to be an adult. People under 18 were a part of this without their informed consent or their parents' informed consent. But I'll say more explicitly this time. I think that an explicit opt-in needs to happen for this kind of study. 
varying this in lengthy terms and conditions that they know no one reads simply does not pass ethical muster, so far at least as I'm concerned. With that in mind, Facebook does have its defenders. I disagree with them. And even the journal itself, PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, has now realized that they should have been a little bit more thorough in vetting the ethics of this study and deciding whether they should publish it. In the version that's now online, there is an extra page, and by the way, it is actually free to anyone to access, so I'll have a link to that in the show notes also. Uh, but in the version that is now online, there is an extra page at the beginning, and it is headlined, quote, Editorial Expression of Concern, end quote, and it's signed by the editor-in-chief, Inder M. Verma. It reads, in full, quote, PNAS is publishing an editorial expression of concern regarding the following article, and then it gives the name and all the bibliographic information for the article. This paper represents an important and emerging area of social science research that needs to be approached with sensitivity and with vigilance regarding personal privacy issues. Questions have been raised about the principles of informed consent and opportunity to opt out in connection with the research in this paper. The authors noted in their paper, quote, The work was consistent with Facebook's data use policy, which it wasn't, to which all users agree prior to creating an account on Facebook, constituting informed consent for this research, end quote. When the authors prepared their paper for publication in PNAS, they stated that, quote, Because this experiment was conducted by Facebook Incorporated for internal purposes, the Cornell University IRB, Institutional Review Board, determined that the project did not fall under Cornell's Human Research Protection Program, end quote. This statement has since been confirmed by Cornell University. Obtaining informed consent and allowing participants to opt out are best practices in most instances under the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services policy for the protection of human research subjects, the, quote, common rule, end quote. Adherence to the common rule is PNAS policy, but as a private company, Facebook was under no obligation to conform to that provisions of the common rule when it collected the data used by the authors, and the common rule does not preclude their use of the data. Based on the information provided by the authors, PNAS editors deemed it appropriate to publish the paper. It is nevertheless a matter of concern that the collection of the data by Facebook may have involved practices that were not fully consistent with the principles of obtaining informed consent and allowing participants to opt out. End quote. So, yeah, as my dad said, I really kind of hope that Cornell's IRB takes a lot of flack on this and that they re-examine their policies, and I would probably prefer to just get rid of all of them and start with a new board. If that board was willing to just pass the buck and say, hey, this is done at Facebook, yeah, we have authors who are going to be working on this who are employees here, but because it's at Facebook, we don't care, that's wrong, in my opinion. Now, this has sort of been a lengthy, almost rant, but I hope that it's uh, taught you or informed you a little bit more about the ethics of science and why scientists hold themselves to such high ethics. Now, in an attempt to return to the general subject matter of the podcast, do ethics play a role in more of the hard sciences like astronomy, geology, or physics? They do, but to a much smaller level because we typically don't deal with people. But they're always there. For example, when I go to write a grant, I have to answer questions about whether my research will involve human studies, 
or culturally sensitive studies, or anything related to Native Americans. If it does, then there's a lot of extra paperwork and approvals that I have to go through. I've reviewed proposals that we're going to conduct field studies in land that is considered sacred by some native peoples. And because of that, we had to do an extra step as a review panel and look to make sure that they had all of their paperwork in, that it was all approved by their IRBs and the federal government and the people who's the native peoples who hold that land to be sacred. All of that stuff factors in with this kind of research. And this is, you know, as I said, this was astronomy research. It was actually for uh, Mars analog kind of stuff, looking at places on Earth that are similar to Mars. And I can't really say more than that because of confidentiality issues. Again, ethics. Scientific rules of ethics also play a general role in data gathering and reporting. Simply put, ethics would require that, as my dad mentioned, we don't fake our data. And other than in undergraduate labs sometimes, just to get the right answer to, so that the TA doesn't give us an F, we don't fake our data. Or very, 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 very rarely. And in those cases, they're almost always rooted out, and Aussies who are listening to this can stop sniggering. Science is self-correcting because it requires objective duplication. And when stuff can't be duplicated because someone has faked their data, we may start to look at the person who conducted the work. Take, for example, the discussion towards the end of episode 55, the interview that I did with Brian Heenick about extraterrestrial life, and our discussion of GFAJ-1, the bacterium that was supposedly discovered by a postdoctoral student that was said to have replaced the phosphorus in its DNA with arsenic. It, actually, it was discovered by the student and it supposedly had replaced the phosphorus in its DNA with arsenic, which has huge astrobiological implications. The team did not do the tests required to really show what they claimed, and it later turned out that their work was kind of shady. While the bacterium did its job and got Felicia a job, that's the G-F-A-J that they actually named it, it was named to get Felicia a job, the postdoc, that kind of controversy has caused many of us to not take her at her word anymore. Looking at her papers, she hasn't even published since 2011, and she hasn't been the first author in a peer-reviewed paper or even a conference abstract since GFAJ1 back in 2010. Contrast that with the ethics of pseudoscientists and the claims of poor ethics by pseudoscientists flung at real scientists. I've been accused by at least three pseudoscientists of lying, cheating in some way, being a shoddy scientist, or just be using my paid time at work or work resources to do my outreach stuff like this kind of podcast. All of those would be serious ethical violations, except being a shoddy scientist, and I think that my publication record speaks against that. And any of those serious ethical violations, any one of them, would threaten my job or career in general. People simply wouldn't trust me anymore. It's also just so happens to be illegal for me to use work resources because mine were paid for from a NASA grant to do anything but my actual work. While no one's really going to care if I spend two minutes on Facebook using the computer that, you know, while I eat lunch or whatever, these kinds of things are actually monitored. And a pseudoscientist making the simple accusation of that could cause a serious ethics investigation, causing many months of headache. Whether they realize that or not, it shows that we, in academia and science in general, take ethics very seriously. Again, contrast that with the pseudoscientist. 
many that I've dealt with really don't have ethical qualms about lying or faking data. How do I know? Because it's been pointed out to them, and they have acknowledged receipt of that information and sometimes even acknowledged its veracity, and yet they continue to make the claims or use the data that they're simply now lying about. Alternatively, some simply lie about what people have said or their positions on various subjects. Join us on the Facebook page for the podcast and look at June 24th for an example on that. By way of wrap-up, the purpose of this episode, again, is to explain to those of you who aren't in science some more of what goes on behind the scenes. Yes, science is a human endeavor, and as such, the people involved can make mistakes and do stupid things, and some just simply don't play by the same rules that the rest of us do. But it is particularly rare, especially with respect to many other fields. When a scientist is found to have faked a major study, it's front-page news. When, for example, a politician is found to have lied or broken general ethics, it's a normal day. And it would be nice if pseudoscientists understood that. By way of another example, take climate change people could maybe legitimately question the data, possibly the methods. They always question the conclusions. But when the retort is simply fraud on the part of every researcher working in climate research or climate change research, or they're in it for the money, perhaps now you understand why that's just generally a non-starter for other scientists and why most of us who are in science really look on that kind of retort of, oh, it's just fraud, with disdain. This is why scientists are consistently among the highest rated in trustworthiness among all professions when polled. So in the end, I think that research ethics are important, and that most scientists take them very, very seriously. Many pseudoscientists don't. Many corporations don't. Bringing this back to the initial topic, Facebook may think that what they did was fully justified and covered by their terms and conditions, but I think that the majority of the scientific community does not. And the fact that two researchers from Cornell, although one of them is now at University of California, San Francisco, participated in this work, and that Cornell's IRB took a pass on it, should be very troubling. And I hope that the academic authors are held accountable in some way, along with Cornell's IRB. Alright, so this episode being a a lot longer than I initially intended, but I think that it's important. Um, As I, if any, if nothing else, I hope that I got across that in science we take ethics very, very seriously. So with that in mind, we're already past the 50-minute mark, so I'm just going to go quickly to announcements. Um, Anyone want to meet up at TAM? Let me know. I'll be bringing food to bribe you. Um, if not, then I'll just spend all my time with Carl Mamer of the Conspiracy Skeptic Podcast, as well as uh, Nigel St. Whitehall of the Skeptical Review blog, and also previous guest on this podcast and the Conspiracy Skeptic Podcast. And if that's not enough interest to get you to try to find us, well, I don't know what is. I don't know why you're still listening. Anyway, uh, also, if you're at TAM, make sure to come to these Sunday morning paper presentations. The lineup is going to be great this year, not the least of which because I'm in it. Um, I'm allowed to toot my own horn a little bit, especially on my own show. At 8.40 a.m., I will be talking about the Cydonia region of Mars. Yes, if you've followed this podcast for more than a week, then you know all about it. But 
it should still be an interesting talk and I'll have clips from the movie and I'm going to gear it more towards uh, skepticism in general as opposed to just the debunking of the claim. Um, uh, oh yeah, there are other paper talks too. Um, let's see what they are. Uh, okay, so at 8 o'clock we have the mystifying, misdefining, and misdiagnosing of disassociation presented by Robert Stern. At 8.20 there is the response believer presented by Jacques Rousseau. Then at 8.40, there's me. At 9 o'clock, there is Pitfalls of Bayesian Reasoning, presented by Chris Guest. At 9.20, there's Teaching the Nature of Science, a Social Justice Argument, presented by Michelle, uh, probably get her name wrong, Nair, K-N-A-I-E-R. And at 9.40, there's What You Always Wondered About Advertising, an Insider Fesses Up, presented by Steve Kuno, or Kuno. Um... Actually, that one might be particularly interesting, given the topic that I just talked about for the last 50 minutes. Maybe he'll talk about Facebook stuff. Hopefully um, hopefully he'll mention at least a little bit. Or these talks are supposed to be 15 minutes long, and then with five minutes for questions and speaker change. So if he doesn't bring it up, hopefully someone will ask during the question and answer period. So with that in mind, I'm going to sign off for now. By the way, there are two episodes that I have recorded. They're both interviews, both with the same person, and we're going to talk about an introduction to and a prime example of the Electric Universe idea. That wraps up this topic for the 114th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on the comment, or leave a comment on the blog post for the episode, or leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me. I'm online at pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, random people that you'll never meet in real life, or that you might just happen to run into at TAM. Yeah, TAM, that would be a great time to advertise for this. Signing off, 